morning we look at Psalm 85, a plea for revival. A plea for revival. A lot has happened this year and one might be forgiven for not realising that uh, it's crept up on us so quickly and that is Christmas. It's only, well, it's less than four weeks. Less than four weeks away. Christmas 2020. So this morning I would like to dive into the season of Advent that uh, precedes Christmas as we look at this psalm. And Psalm 85 is considered a post-exilic psalm. Um, It was written by someone who has come back after being deported to Babylon and this person uh, was probably born in Babylon for the people of God were there, people of Israel, the Jews were there for about uh, 70 years and now they were coming back, back to Jerusalem, back to the holy city and started the whole rebuilding process. Because after 70 years in exile, Cyrus, the king of Persia, conquered the other kingdom, the other empire, the Babylonian empire. That's what happens throughout history. One empire conquers another and another and another. That's the history of the world. But Cyrus was a friendly king towards the Jews and he sent the Jews back to resettle Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. If you want to read more about this, Ezra and Nehemiah and some of the minor prophets describe in more detail this this period and and some of the challenges that they face upon returning and rebuilding, trying to rebuild this city that was demolished. So this psalm starts out as a, as a national lament because once the enthusiasm of the return home had worn off because people went home, back home with, with joy in their hearts and after a few years the reality started to hit hard. A few years after the return to Jerusalem, things were still bad and and very little progress was achieved. They had not rebuilt God's temple. There was not much rain and so without many crops there was a food shortage. Also there was the persistent nagging of the enemies around who were mocking them, trying to stifle their their efforts to rebuild the cities and making life very difficult for them. These are what some of the people of Edom and others. As a result, the the spirits were were down with the people of God and, and, and these return exiles could... The only, the only conclusion that they could come to was that God was somehow still upset with them, was still punishing them from the things that their forefathers had done in the past and the things that were the things that the, the sins that led to the original exile and they were saying well God, God's anger is still with us because he hasn't blessed us as much as he should have so they thought now at the heart of this wonderful psalm is a heartfelt prayer for revival 
And this some, there is one word in the original language, in the original Hebrew language, which comes up five times, and that is the word turn or turned or to turn. It was, a, it was written by the, the sons of Korah, who were part of the original temple musicians. And uh, as you know, the... Uh, Korah, that name we looked at a couple of weeks ago, part of their rebellion. They rebelled against Moses and the adult males in this family were punished by death when the earth swallowed them up. So they didn't have a a good background in their family. However, the children grew up to be temple guards and musicians. That's, That's an act of God, isn't it? Looks like this fruit fell very far from the apple tree, in a good way. And it's a sign of God's grace and mercy upon this family of musicians. So what is the essence of revival? First of all, in verses 1 to 3, revival is based upon his past acts. You showed favour to your land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. The psalmist is is looking back. He's, He's thinking back upon the rich spiritual history of Israel. He is remembering how after Israel had given in to sin time and time again, God always provided a plan to bring them back to himself. A lot of the times it included pain, punishment, but the punishments always had a redemptive purpose. And this new generation, many of whom would have grown up in captivity in Babylon, had heard of how God had moved among the patriarchs. That was part of their rich history. Moses, Samuel, David. Their parents would have taught them around the fire about the great acts of God in the past and how God delivered them. He delivered them from Egypt and the many victories that they experienced as they entered the promised land. But now the glory days were over. The glory days of David and Solomon are a distant memory. Now they find themselves in the midst of rubble and gloom. And that's all they could see. In the words of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 3, they said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. If we cast our eyes on the the mess around us, the growing mess around us, it can indeed be very discouraging. Secular society has no inkling of what the word iniquity means. 
Iniquity, what does that mean? It means sin. It means that which angers God. Rebellion. Falling away. No, we don't like the word iniquity. That is not what the problem is in Australia. Okay? It's not sin. The problem in Australia, they tell us, okay, is climate change. The problem in Australia is race relations. The problem in Australia is gender and economic inequality. That's the problem. See, can you see? Instead of looking at the problem, we we look at other things that distract us. And looking over the moral landscape, it can be discouraging. No, we don't want to talk about the 85,000 abortions every year. Let's not talk about that. 85,000 murders and... No, I can't say that because that's a choice. We don't want to talk about the suicide rate. Look at the moral landscape and, and you open your eyes and say, wow, wow, we're in a mess. There's rubble everywhere. And, I, and I'm not, I don't, I don't, I'm not distracted by all the, the beauty that I see around us. And, and I'm that because as a son of God and, and you as a daughter and son of God, you should also not be distracted by all of this. this, this we, we are living in Disneyland here, okay? But let that, don't let all the, the thrills and spills of Disneyland distract you from what is going on. But if we cast our eyes to God, it is there we find the reasons for hope and thankfulness. Just this past week, Thanksgiving has been celebrated in the US. And it's a a wonderful tradition. It's a wonderful tradition from the early pilgrims who had no food and, and, and somehow that's how the whole thing of race relations started with the local Indians and provided food for them and they started to... These people were escaping persecution and they found freedom and the provision of God who had blessed them and they kneeled down and they thanked God for delivering over, over the seas into a land of plenty. And this generation today, there's even moves now to cancel Thanksgiving forever in the US. Next comes Christmas and so on. Because we don't, we don't want to be, we don't want to go there. But the problem, the thing is that Thanksgiving is not just about God's bountiful supplies of food and, 
a roof over our heads and, and, and clothing, those things. But for the child and daughter of God, thanksgiving is about this humble recognition for the forgiveness of our iniquities and the covering of our sins that only God could do. Spurgeon, the great Spurgeon, preached a sermon on verse 2. And, the, and verse 2, I remind you again, that you forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. And, and he did a, a brilliant contrast with Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And the gist of his message is that man tries to cover his sins, but fails miserably, doesn't he? So we have royal commissions and we have commissions and, and this. We've got to cover that. Don't acknowledge that. Just when, you, when they ask you questions, simply say, I don't remember. I can't recall. And, and, and this attitude seems to, to wash through the rest of the population. Well, if our leaders can't remember something that happened two weeks ago, for legal reasons, then the rest of us it just gives us excuse and suddenly... Everybody else is dishonest with each other, dishonest with your boss, dishonest with the tax, the ATO, dishonest with your banks, dishonest with your wife, with your husband, with your children. You see how it spreads? It just spreads throughout the land. And that's normal, they say. Well, no, it's not. What you're doing is you're covering up sin. And the Bible is full of examples of this. Because the only one who can cover our sins is who? Is God. And we call this atonement. This is an image of the atonement. He covers our sins. And from the Old Testament sacrificial system to the 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 whole of the temple sacrifice to the ultimate sacrifice on the cross, it was God covering the sins of his people because he could not look at sin. The only way he could do it was covering it with the blood of his precious son. And this forgiveness did not come about because the people earned it, because they deserved it, because they somehow followed God's commandments? No, 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 no. It was none of that. This happened in spite of these things. It was all grace. It happened because of God's love and because of his everlasting grace and mercy. It was all because of his covenantal promise to the forefathers. It happened because through the discipline, through the punishment, the people cried out, repented of their sins, repented of their sins, repented of, I will have to repeat that again because that is what is not happening today, repented of their sins and turned to God and God forgave them. A gift from God given to all who would receive it. 
If God believed in the cancel culture, he would have cancelled the people of Israel, wouldn't he? And they came close a couple of times. Just read, just read the stories with Moses. Moses, let me just cancel the people of Israel. I'll start with you. Remember that passage? Okay, cancel culture, and God says, no, 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 no. Keep the promises. Folks, all of us can look back at the great things God has done. If you can't look back at the great things God has done, well, then you have really lost your memory. I'm sorry. In years past, I remember speaking to my dad about the way that at six years of age, he was only six, God delivered him and his whole family from not just the famine, they just recovering from the famine at that time, but he's, certainly his mum and dad survived the famine in Ukraine under Stalin. His, his family survived that, but then... In 1939, how just before Germany invaded, Germany invaded Poland, his whole family was delivered in 1939, just before the start of the Second World War. I would not be here if it wasn't for that. God's deliverance. And the subsequent acts of grace where the government gave him land to work in Paraguay to all those, I don't know, what, what would you call them today? Refugees? They came to work in Paraguay and displaced. And life was hard, yes. And folks, this generation now, don't just ask, talk to Grandpa, or even if your great-grandpa is alive. Australia was not like this 40, 50, 60, 100 years ago. It was not like this. Life was tough. And it was hot. And there was drought. And there was misery. And post-war, if you wanted to build a house, you couldn't just go to Bunnings and get a whole load of bricks and materials. There was... You need to put your name down and, and you have to basically build your house brick by brick because they wouldn't give you a thousand bricks. You had to do it brick at a time. And we forget those days. But don't get too comfortable. God could send them again. I'm not making this stuff up, guys. Be thankful for God's deliverance. When your parents talk to you about stories of deliverance from refugee camps, from Cambodia, from Africa, from other parts of the world, from disease and persecution, listen, because these are the stories that you will have to tell your children and your grandchildren and others. Tell the acts of God's marvellous deliverance. 
His provision given to you as a gift from above. Which leads to the second point. Based on his revival, is based on his salvation, verses 4 to 7. Restore us again, O God, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us, there's that word again, your salvation. The psalmist has looked back at God's greatness and now in verses 4 to 7 he begins to look both without and within. He does not like what he sees so he cries out to God. And first he begs God to restore them again. And in verse 6 he steps up a notch and pleads, Revive us again! The word in Hebrew translated, like I said before, revive consists of, of, of two words. The first word is already mentioned, means to, to turn, to return. And the second term comes from a word means to live, to become strong or to be restored. In the first one, God is asked, in the first one, he is asking God to turn back his people into his direction. In the other, he's asking for the restoration of life itself. Because to revive, in essence, means to resurrect, to make alive again. And there is that wonderful picture, the wonderful word that comes from Ezekiel 37, called the Valley of the Dry Bones. One of the great passages from the Old Testament um, where God asks Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? But Ezekiel's taken to, to a valley of bones. It had been a battle scene. There were all these bones. Horrible scene. And God asked Ezekiel, and, and, and I said, O sovereign Lord, you, are, you alone know whether these bones can live or not. And I thought that was a brilliant answer. He didn't say yes, he didn't say no. It's a trick question. He said, you alone know God. Very clever, Ezekiel, very, very clever. And then in verse 10 he says, and listen to this, so I prophesied as he commanded me and, and, and breath entered them. They came to life and, and stood on their feet, a vast army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, O oh, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. How many times has this story been repeated? The people revived, given new life through the power of God. In evangelical circles, in the history of Christianity, we know them as revivals. 
when God's Spirit moves in such a powerful way. And the history of revivals, uh, if you've read any books, is such an encouraging topic. A time when God's Spirit descends in such a powerful way that individual lives are, are changed and communities are changed. Nations change. History is changed. Reading a story of revival in um, in England um, when the dock workers were getting converted and uh, all these dock workers, all the tools that they stolen from the shipyards, suddenly all these workers who were converted started bringing all the tools back and all the material that they stolen. And they didn't have enough room to store all these stolen stuff. That they need to build new storage room space because people were converted. What a problem to have, right? It's an act of God. Here in Australia even, even after the Billy Graham crusades. That, uh, uh, Close uh, cases that had not been closed because you know, crimes that had not been solved and people were turning themselves in. It's marvellous. Marvellous. Say yes, I did that, and you'd say, "Yep, confessed and go to jail." And you probably and today are thinking, "You'd be an idiot to do that." No, because there's a higher authority, God who you are now submitting to. And and we simply can't schedule this. We can't make this up. This is a gift of God, an act of God. And the great preacher Campbell Morgan once said, revival cannot be organised. What we can do is set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon his people once again. Beautiful, eh? Thirdly, based on his words, verses 8 to 9, I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. The psalmist wants to hear the words of the Lord and not just hear them, but listen intently to the words of the Lord. You see, when the word is proclaimed, God's spirit is at work and things start to happen. In the book of Acts, this is quite evident. The word of God is proclaimed, the spirit works and the people have to respond in one way or another. God has spoken. How will you respond? Acts chapter 2. And they are brought to the point. Are you going to accept God's word or are you going to reject it? In the history of revivals again, these things do not happen separately or apart from the proclamation of the Spirit of God, working, the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. This is what James Montgomery Boyce said. He said, historically revivals have begun under strong biblical preaching. 
We have to continue to preach God's word faithfully if we have any hope of seeing revival in our land. And there was a warning here to those who have already accepted the word. Let them not return to folly. Because one of the issues with revival is that, unfortunately, it doesn't last. Why doesn't it last? Because people return to folly. They see their lives being restored. Suddenly, everything is great. There's peace and prosperity in the land. We're all comfortable once again. It's God's blessing. And what happens? The people return to folly. Folly is another word for stupid. Idiocy. You take God's blessings for granted. And this is why not only do we desperately need the word of God and his spirit, not only to save us, to deliver us, but also to keep us on track, stay on the right track and not return to folly. Number four, it is based, revival is based on his attributes, verses 10 to 11. Love or mercy in other translation and faithfulness or truth in other translations meet together. Mercy and truth meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Ever since the Garden of Eden, these qualities such as mercy, truth, righteousness, peace, they're all there, but they're working against each other. What do I mean by that? Well, there has been mercy, but without truth, and peace without righteousness. Because mercy without truth can become a sham and ripe for abuse because there is little accountability. For example, a judge can show mercy by being very lenient to a drunk driver who killed a child, only for him to go and reoffend again because he got off lightly last time. That, my friends, is an example of mercy without truth. But here we have mercy and truth meeting together. In a similar way, one can seek peace without righteousness and that is also something that many, some of you might be here and certainly some of you might yet to experience this in its full measure. It is, I've certainly seen this in Paraguay under dictatorships in the past. Peace without righteousness is a hallmark of many totalitarian states like communism or fascism. The Soviet Union was relatively peaceful for decades. <laughs> peaceful. Because people lived under absolute fear. Any sign of trouble was quickly quashed. 
without trial, irrespective of whether people were guilty or not. Somebody offended in, 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 a house, in, in a house and the rest of the house was just wiped out. And if you're not careful, the house across the road was wiped out. And the witnesses, anybody who saw it, everybody disappeared. That's how you keep the peace. Yet here, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. They've come together. They embrace one another with delight. Amos said, and this, uh, this particular verse was quoted by Martin Luther King in his great uh, sermon, let justice roll down on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. Amos 5.24 And here we have the, the wonder of the reconciliation between God and man. The psalmist is looking forward to a time when this would happen under God's power. You want to see mercy, truth, righteousness, peace? Look at the cross. Want to see peace between heaven and earth? Look at the old rugged cross. You want to see the ultimate display of the character of God for all of history to witness? Where the wonderful attributes of God come together in perfect harmony, consistency, unity, with no contradictions. Look at the cross. And if there was a perfect person in whom all these qualities of love and righteousness, mercy, truth come together, it was Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God. All of these discordant and contradictory parts of our fallen humanity, all of our disintegration, all of our conflicts, can never find resolution in ourselves, only in him. And lastly, it is based upon his blessings, verses 12 to 13. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Despite the challenges that the psalmist faced, despite the rubble and the drought, despite how he felt, he knew deep inside that God will ultimately come through for his people once again. This is why all of us need to get one thing straight. Our God is a good God. He is a good God. In fact, nothing good is apart from God's goodness. We have no other way to define what is good apart from God. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change, who does not follow opinion polls, who does not follow the mood of the people, does not follow what is politically correct. 
It does not change like shifting shadows. The last verse confirms the the messianic thrust of this passage, doesn't doesn't it? Uh, Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. That's a beautiful messianic declaration right there. Uh, And when you read this psalm, uh, it's almost... Verses 9 to 13 point towards the coming of the Messiah, Christ our Lord. And and this is the wonderful mystery of the incarnation. There is this preparation that takes place before his arrival. It goes before him. The righteousness actually prepares the way for his steps. This is what the prophets spoke of, right? This is what John the Baptist did. This is what he said. This is what he meant when he said, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And this looks forward to the day when God would one day walk on the earth and it happened 520 years later after this psalm was written. And for us it happened 2,000 years ago. The season of Advent when Jesus bore our human flesh, is truly upon us. With everything that has happened, I think it's, it's great to be thankful that we are still here. This pandemic that was going to be gloom and doom is still around. It has taught us some lessons. Some of the lessons I don't think we have learned too well. But in the words of the psalmist, let us not return to folly. Some of our brothers and sisters are now with the Lord. Brother John, Sister Rita. Our lives are in his hands. We cannot live in fear, folks. Not through pandemics, not through government declarations, not through anything. The only person we are to fear is God. Let me conclude. And although the apathy of some Christians and the wickedness that we are witnessing in our society is discouraging, we should pray and remain confident that our God is sovereign, he is still on the throne, he is still king. The story of William Wilberforce, the, the great Christian politician, vigorous opponent of the slave trade in England and uh, the British Empire. In the 1800s, we, we know of his story. And as he, as he surveyed the terrible moral and spiritual climate of, of his day, One revival, one awakening had already come and gone. And and because why? Because the people were returned to folly. And he wrote this, he said, he wrote, My own solid hopes for the well being of my country depend not so much on her navies or armies, nor on the wisdom of her rulers, nor on the spirit of her people as on the persuasion that she, will, she still contains many 
who love and obey the gospel of Christ. And I believe that their prayers may yet prevail. End of quote. Where is our hope? Where is our strength? And within a few years after he made this statement, the country he loved experienced another great awakening and one of the greatest revivals in modern times, bringing salvations to tens of thousands and producing once slavery was taken out of the way, widespread social changes in the empire. Same God who's worked in the past is here with us. If the people but humble themselves and turn to him, he will do the rest. May God bless us. Amen.